So First City Church was planted with this specific mission, to glorify God by making disciples, planting churches, and cultivating spiritual renewal through the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, at the, the center of who we are is this call to go and make disciples, proclaiming the gospel, baptizing, teaching people to follow Christ as he commanded. And if I can be frank for just a moment, if this isn't the center of who we are as a church, then let's just pack up and leave. But like, honestly, if we're not about making disciples and sharing the gospel for the glory of God, then we should just shut the whole thing down. Like, like if we're just here to be a, a, a cool community or just to hang out with some friends and people that we like, like, it isn't worth it. It isn't why God has called us. We're, we're here for a particular reason and a particular mission. And my heart is, is that that would be uh, the thing that, that motivates us and drives us as a church, that we would see God glorified by making disciples. You see, here, here's what can happen. You know, we're three and a half years in, and things largely have been going good. We're, we're a growing community. As Pastor Paul pointed out, we're strong financially. It's been an incredible blessing. Most of our systems and processes are pretty stable. So it would be very easy for us to sort of just sit back and coast, say, hey, things are going pretty well, and, and I kind of got my crew of people that I like and enjoy, and we just sort of go from there. Rather than being on the front line of mission, rather than having sort of that missional angst that drives us to say, hey, we want to see more people brought into the family of God. We want to see the glory of God spread by disciples being made. And so that's why I want to take three weeks to just spend some time reflecting on this core value of ours, mission. Back in September, we talked about our core value of being gospel-centered. We're a gospel-centered church and what that meant. Beginning of this year, we talked about what it means that we're a community. And now we're going to spend some time talking about what it means that we are on mission. So for the next three weeks, we're going to talk about things that really, if you've been around First City Church, you've heard before. Like nothing that I'm going to say and what Pastor Paul is going to say is relatively new. I mean, some of this stuff is going to be just reminding and refreshing us who we are but we need that. I know I need that. I need my eyes lifted, my heart encouraged, remind me why we're doing this, what God has called us to as a community, what defines us. And my hope is this, that for those of you that belong to First City Church, and those of you that are considering belonging to First City Church, my hope is that your faith would be strengthened in sharing the gospel. Uh, my hope is that your hope in the power of God to save would be strengthened and that our obedience to go and share the gospel and make disciples would be deepened. For those of you here that, that wouldn't profess faith in Christ, here, here's what I hope for you, that, that you hear our hearts for you, that you hear our heart that we want you to know Christ. But more than that, we want you to know Christ. I want you to hear the amazing story of the gospel and God's love for sinners and the powerful salvation that is in Jesus and for you to turn from your sin and follow Christ as your Lord and Savior. And so by God's spirit, by his word, uh, those things will happen over these next three weeks. And so as we, we kick off our series, we're going to start in a place that unfortunately we often overlook. You see, before we can jump to methods and strategies of sharing the gospel— 
we need to remember that faithful mission first starts with prayer. We need to be people of prayer. And that is our main idea for this morning. Faithful mission starts with prayer. And to get inside this idea, I want to answer two questions. First is why pray? And then what to pray for? So first, why pray? In Colossians 4.2, Paul exhorts the church. He says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Paul saw prayer as absolutely necessary to the mission of making disciples. More than anything else to support his ministry, more than even asking for money, Paul asked for prayer. Why? Why was Paul so adamant that people pray for him and that he pray himself? Well, here's what he understood. One, that prayer is the power by which God works. Like, like we don't necessarily understand the interaction of God's sovereignty and our prayers, but we do know that Scripture tells us God works through our prayers. There is power in our prayers, and so we are called to pray because that is how God works. But secondly, prayer also shapes us. Prayer shapes and forms our hearts. And so if we want to be people who are faithful to share the gospel and make disciples, we need to be people who are shaped by prayer and in prayer. And that's what I want to spend a few minutes looking at is considering how does prayer shape us? Well, first, prayer shapes dependence. See, the Apostle Paul understood that he was utterly dependent upon the power of God. He knew that he needed the power of God in sharing the gospel and making disciples. So this is why Paul called the church at Colossae and other churches that he wrote to, to prayer, because he wanted them to be dependent. He wanted them to recognize that they are absolutely dependent upon the power of God. This is what he wrote to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 3, 5 through 7. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as a Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollo watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Understand what he's saying. Like the Apostle Paul was a phenomenal leader. He wrote over two-thirds of the New Testament. He knew his theology. He could teach. He could disciple. Apollos was this powerful teacher. These guys were gifted guys. Dudes, you would want in your church and on your team. But what does Paul say? The power isn't in us. It doesn't matter how gifted you are, how smart you are, how articulate you are. The power is in God. We are utterly dependent upon the Lord. And so we want to be a church that sees people come to know Christ. We want to be empowered for the mission. We, we want the power to share the gospel and see people know Jesus and be transformed by him. That we need to depend upon the Lord. We need to depend upon his power. And as we pray to God, we're shaped in that dependence. As we pray, we're shaped as those who know they need God's power, and it's not up to our ability. So as we cry out to God, God, I need your power. God, I need your wisdom. God, I need you to help me share the gospel and make disciples. As we pray those things, we're being shaped. We're being formed. We're becoming people who are dependent but there's something else that, uh, that works on the other side of this as well. Like if you give yourself to the mission of making disciples, and those of you that, that are living on mission, you know this. If you give yourself to this, you're going to feel your dependence pretty quickly. Like you're going to bump up against your limitations. 
You're going to experience and recognize, wow, I really do need the power of God. And so here's this beautiful interaction that takes place. As we pray and ask the Lord for power, we, we are compelled to go and share the gospel. And as we share the gospel, we feel our need. So that drives us back to prayer. And so there's this wonderful interaction that is taking place. Like life-giving, faith-building, heart-shaping dependence is formed in us as we pray and as we share the gospel. This is how Jeremy Walker in his book, The Brokenhearted Evangelist, describes it. How do we keep our prayers fiery? By engaging in hand-to-hand combat with Satan's hosts for those who are yet under his dominion. Why do we keep our spiritual weapons sharp so that we can fight? How do we learn how to use those weapons? When we engage with lost men. Where are our minds fired with holy truth so that we begin to understand, to press, and to be in earnest? When are our hearts most ablaze with love for Jesus Christ? When, in short, are we most alive as Christians? With the possible exception of the gatherings of the saints for worship, it is when we are involved in the life business of the redeemed men and women of Jesus Christ, engaging with transgressors and seeking their salvation for the glory of God in Jesus Christ. Nothing so casts us upon the grace of God in Jesus Christ Nothing so reminds us of our need and sends us in desperation to God for increased measures of his spirit as the reality of wrestling for souls. If you give yourself to the mission, you know this is true. It is this incredible experience where you feel alive in Christ, you feel dependent, you feel your need, and it drives you back to to God in prayer, but it also builds your faith and builds your strength. See, often I think our fear in sharing the gospel is the result of misplaced power. Like we think it's up to us. We think it is up to our wisdom, our intelligence, our theological knowledge, our ability to articulate our personality and how good we are with people. Look, all of those things have limited power. All of those things can only go so far. They're not the thing that transforms people. They're not the thing that makes people come to faith in Christ. And so if we're depending upon those things, then yes, we should be afraid. Yes, we should acknowledge that they're limited. But if we're depending upon the power of God, then we can see those things in the right place. And so yes, we should grow. We should grow in knowledge. We should grow in understanding theology. We should grow in our ability to share the gospel We want to be faithful. But doing all of that, we depend upon the Lord and his power. Prayer shapes us in dependence, and so let us be people of prayer. Prayer also shapes kingdom priorities. And let's be honest. With all of the demands and responsibilities of life, it's very easy for us to get caught up in our own kingdoms. It is easy to be shaped by the American dream more so than shaped by the Great Commission. Like if we look at our our task lists throughout the day, our our task lists reveal that, that we're people running after and searching for an identity. We're trying to build an identity on our own. Like our task lists reveal that we're out to perform and impress people. Our task lists reveal that we want our kingdoms to come, our wills to be done, and we want other people to get on board with our agenda. 
But is this all there is to life? I, I wonder, is, is trying to build your own sense of success and status and comfort all there is to life? I mean, think of like your daily routine, job and school and running the kids to sports or music recitals or doing chores or going from this event to that event to this event, tiring yourself out, going on vacation, rinse and repeat. Like in all of that, what are we building? What are we going after? Things that do not last? Things that are impermanent? Now, don't get me wrong. Ordinary life is good and it is noble. But the question for us is what is underneath? What is the purpose of that ordinary life? What is it ultimately going after? What is it resulting in? You see, ordinary life is the ground zero for mission. Ordinary life is the ground zero for God to do kingdom work in us and through us. And so the question is, isn't how do I get out of my ordinary life? It's how does the kingdom inform my ordinary life? How does the kingdom shape my ordinary life? Prayer orients us away from our kingdoms and toward the kingdom of God. As Jesus taught us to pray, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. And so when we pray that the kingdom would come, that that the gospel of Jesus Christ would go forth, and people would see and know the love and the grace and the compassion and goodness of God, and they would turn from their sin. When the kingdom of God goes forth and righteousness and justice and gospel renewal takes hold of a city, then when we pray for that, guess what happens? We get set free. Like we get set free from chasing after our own status and success and comfort. We get set free from having to perform for people and build our own identity. We get set free from chasing after impermanent things that do not satisfy. When we pray that the kingdom comes, we're set free to love and to serve and to sacrifice that other people might know Jesus. Like through prayer, our ordinary life takes on kingdom priority. Through prayer, our ordinary life takes on kingdom power. Through prayer, how we do our jobs, how we live in our marriages, how we go to school and live in our homes, how we do our chores, how we go to the park, how we go to the grocery store, how we hang out with our friends, how we play sports, how we do music, how we do all of it is shaped with some profound depth and true significance. See, through prayer, kingdom priorities are formed in us and shaped in us. That's why we pray. That's why we pray that the kingdom would come because we want to be people who live with kingdom priorities. Third, prayer shapes compassion. So are our hearts moved and are they broken over those who are far from Christ? Like, do we care or are we indifferent? Do we have compassion? See, in prayer, our hearts are shaped and oriented towards compassion. In Matthew 9, 35 through 10, 5, we see Jesus' heart of compassion. This is what Matthew writes. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, 
teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. See, Jesus sees people broken by sin. He he sees people trapped in sin. He sees people afflicted by sickness and disease, which is the result of sin. He, He sees people trapped in false teaching, and he has compassion on them. This word compassion, it's the verb form of the word guts, meaning Jesus felt in his guts for these people. At the deepest core of his being, he felt for them. And he turns to his disciples and he says, pray to the Lord that he would send workers. In compassion, Jesus prays that people would go and share the gospel and love them and care for them that they may be transformed by the kingdom and healed and experience the grace and mercy of God. And we don't know if the disciples shared this compassion, but here's what we do know. Praying for these people would shape compassion in them. Because here's what, what you know if you've prayed for people. If you pray that people would experience the love and the grace of God, what does that do to your heart towards them? Does it make you indifferent towards them? Does it make you think, well, whatever happens, happens. Hope 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 things turn out well for you. No. As we pray for people, as we care about what's going on, compassion is birthed in us. And so prayer shapes us as people who aren't indifferent to the hurt and the suffering in our world. We're not indifferent to the way people have been trapped in sin and hurt by sin. No, we care. We're compassionate, so we pray. Paul in 1 Timothy 2 exhorts the church to prayer. And if you remember when we went through 1 Timothy last spring, we talked about this. This is what Paul writes. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So in this context, Paul is talking about praying for kings and rulers. And he's doing so because these are the people who were persecuting and afflicting the church. These are the people opposing the church. And Paul is saying, pray for them. Have compassion on them. Care about their souls. Care about their salvation. How often do you and I pray for people who annoy us or oppose us? People that we would see, you're an enemy to my faith or or you're, you're trying to wreck my faith or you're trying to oppose the gospel going forth in the world. People who tear down biblical ethics How often do you pray for them? How often do you have compassion for them? Are you praying that God might save them? Are you praying that the Lord gives you a heart to love them and to care about them? Like, I'm guessing you probably have no problem praying for their judgment. 
Can, can we be honest? Yeah, sure, God, I'll pray for their judgment. Bring them down. But for their salvation, do we have hearts of compassion? Because here's where this passage in 1 Timothy challenges us. Here's the punch of that. See, the people you and I, we want God to rain judgment down. His heart is to save them. It says that God's desire is that all people, this means all kinds, all categories, every, every walk of life, there's no category of person that God is indifferent to. And so the people that you and I, we want to write off, oh, God's heart is to save them. The people you and I might keep at arm's distance for whatever reason, God's heart is to save them. And here's where this passage challenges our comfort. Because what this means is the people you and I, we want God to bring judgment upon, it's our call to pray for them. Pray for their salvation and pray that we would have compassion on them. The people that we want to write off, no, we pray for their salvation and we pray to have compassion on them. The people we want to keep at arm's length, we pray for their salvation and pray to have compassion on them. See, this heart that God calls us to requires prayer. We should be broken over the lost. We we should care that they are locked and trapped in sin. Yes, we oppose evil. Yes, we speak out against evil. Yes, we push back against evil people. But we do so with a heart that God would save them. We do so with a heart of compassion. And that compassion is born as we pray. So why pray? We pray that our hearts may be shaped in dependence, shaped with kingdom priorities, and shaped in the compassion of Christ. So what do we pray for? If that's why we pray, what do we pray for? Three things. First, we pray for opportunities. In Colossians 4, Paul asks for prayer, that he may have opportunities to share the gospel. This is what he writes. At the same time, pray also for us, That God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. May God open a door for the gospel. May God give me opportunities for the gospel. I wonder, what would it look like if every morning you prayed for an opportunity to share the gospel? God, in my daily life, whether it's at my job, in my neighborhood, in my home, wherever I may be, grocery store, park, gym, give me an opportunity to share the gospel. Now, this might be like one of those when you pray for patience, watch out kind of things. Be careful what you pray for. But what would it mean if we prayed for opportunities every day? How would that calibrate you? How would that affect the way that you saw your everyday life? Because often we go through life and we probably miss opportunities. Like like we miss that there are moments where we can speak the gospel to people and share the love of Christ. But because our minds aren't looking for the opportunities, we miss them. And oftentimes this plays out when opportunities come that are unexpected. Like we we typically think, man, when I'm geared up, when I'm ready, maybe when it's convenient, but so often the best times to share the gospel are when it's not convenient or when it's not expected. I mean, look where Paul is. When he's writing to the church in Colossae, this letter to the Colossians, he's in prison. He's locked up. And yet he's asking, open a door. Give me an opportunity to share the gospel. 
Paul's put in prison and he sees, here's an opportunity to share the gospel with people in prison. Here's an opportunity to share the gospel with the jailers. And that's what we see him doing. See, Paul doesn't think that the gospel is limited to just certain opportunities. Paul's expectation isn't just when it is convenient he will share the gospel, just when things are going well for him, or just when he has a captive audience. No, he understands the power of God transcends all circumstances. The power of God transcends all opportunities. It can speak into any opportunity. This is why we pray. We pray that God would use us no matter the opportunity. This is how evangelist John Dixon writes about Paul. In prayer, we lift the work of the gospel above mere circumstances and into the hands of the one who governs everything. An open door for the message, even though the chief messenger is locked in chains. Only prayer could ensure such a beautifully illogical reality. Paul was confident that through the intercessions of other believers, God's word would never be constrained by mere circumstances. Where are the inconveniences in your life? Where are the disruptions? Where are the challenges? Where are the the things that you, like there's no way that this is a gospel opportunity. My guess is, is those are probably the best opportunities. Because here's what happens. When you lean into those kind of opportunities, you run to dependence. You run to God and say, God, I need your power. I need your wisdom. And the power of God works through you. And you're not dependent upon perfect circumstances or perfect knowledge or perfect articulation. You're dependent upon the power of God. So let's pray for opportunities, no matter the circumstances. And let's not just pray for ourselves. Let's pray for one another. Paul was asking people to pray for him. And so let's ask others to pray for us and let's pray for one another. So we pray for opportunities. We also pray for words. In Colossians 4, 4, Paul asks for prayer that his words, for his words, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. He's preaching, he's asking for clarity in his words. Have you ever been in those situations where you went to say something and you just sounded like an idiot? Like you just, what what came out of your mouth was like, I just want to bring all that back in. So I I remember the first time I ever spoke to Mindy. First words ever out of my mouth to Mindy. So the way we met was I was teaching at a school and, and she was filling in for a friend who ran the after school care program. And, and so there was this plot to set us up. And, and I was like, okay, I, I'll go along with this and see what happens. So, so one day I sort of staged a meeting, you know, kind of a meet cute, those of you that love rom-coms. So I, I sort of hung out by the front and was talking to a friend of mine waiting for her to leave. And so it just happened to accidentally leave at the same time. And so we're walking out of the building together and I, I wanted to strike up a conversation with her. And so I, I was going to ask her about, you know, watching the kids. And so I go, man, those kids can be pretty rowdy, right? And she goes, yep. And keeps on walking. <laughs> Not my smoothest move. And I was just standing there going, way to go, Chris. Way to go. That's the best you could do. Here was your moment. And the best you could do is those kids are pretty rowdy, huh? We know what those moments are like. We, we know those moments when, man, what I said just wasn't helpful, wasn't clear. And really, we have to live with this because we're imperfect. We're, we're going to blow it. 
But praying that God would give us the words, praying that God would give us clarity again, we're not on our own. We're not dependent upon our own ability to articulate and speak. And so we pray for words. We pray for clarity. God, use me. Give me the words so that I can speak truth to the person that I'm sharing the gospel with. Now, this doesn't mean God zaps you and you become a PhD in theology or an orator like Martin Luther King. Like, it doesn't mean that we're going to be transformed into someone that we're not. We're still going to be us. You're still going to be you and all your imperfections. But what it means is God is going to give you words. He's going to give you clarity to be able to speak truth to that person. And I can testify, man, when I pray, God, just give me the words. It doesn't mean that I I come across more brilliant or more smooth, but there's a power and a precision to what I'm saying. I kind of, after the conversation, it's like, wow, I said what seemed to be really needed, and I don't know how I did that. God gives us the words, so we pray for clarity. Paul also asked for prayer for boldness to say what needs to be said, because sometimes it can be tempting to pull punches. And even Paul felt this temptation. This is what he writes in the book of Ephesians. He writes to the church, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. That is prayer. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I might declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Paul knew he needed to speak with boldness, but he also knew sometimes he didn't. And so let's pray for boldness. Let's pray for the ability to say hard things when we need to say hard things. But in that boldness, we should also pray for graciousness. In Colossians 4, 6, Paul writes this, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. See, salt brings out flavor. And the graciousness of our speech, even when we're speaking with boldness, brings out the flavor of the gospel. Our speech doesn't flavor the gospel. The gospel already has flavor. But the graciousness of our speech brings it out. It reflects the mercy and the grace and the beauty of God. That God is kind, God is patient, God is gracious. And so whether we're speaking clearly or whether we're speaking boldly, let us pray for graciousness, even when people are opposing, even when people are arguing, even when people are challenging and messy. Let us pray for gracious words. So we pray for opportunities. We pray for words. Finally, we pray for people. See, Scripture tells us that God is sovereign Lord over the hearts of men and women. He must move on our hearts for us to receive the gospel. He must transform our hearts. He must give us life if we are going to believe. This is what 1 Corinthians 4, 6 says, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. For you who believe in Jesus in this room this morning, this is what God did for you. He's shown the light of the knowledge and the face of Jesus Christ into your heart so that you could believe. That wasn't you figuring it out on your own. That wasn't you going, oh, aha, I see Jesus, gospel. Yeah, that makes sense. And it all logically fits together. No, that was the power of, the, of God, the spirit transforming your hearts. You are a believer. You are in Christ. You are transformed because of God. 
And so we pray for people. We pray that God would do this in the hearts of the men and the women, the boys and the girls that we're sharing the gospel with. Here's here's another way to consider this. So in Ephesians 3, Paul prays for the Ephesian church. He tells them, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. See, Paul is praying for the church that they may comprehend and know the love of God because it is so great, so profound. It takes the spirit to know that. He's praying that they would be filled with the fullness of God, something that requires the spirit of God. He's praying these big prayers that God would transform their hearts. God would transform the way that they live their lives. That God would do only what he could do. This was what leads him to prayer. Oh, what would it look like for us to pray this for the people that we know that need Christ? For those that you're sharing the gospel with, that you would pray that God, may they comprehend the love you have for them in Christ. May they be filled with the knowledge of Jesus. May they be filled with all the fullness of God in their hearts. Oh, may we pray this for people. May we ask God to do only what he can do. Look, how many of you are in Christ because someone prayed a prayer like this for you? And God answered. God changed you. God transformed you. Oh, let us pray for people. Let us pray that God does this for them and opens their heart and opens their eyes and does what only he can do. So in conclusion... Let me also remind us this. God calls us to be shamelessly persistent. Like as people of prayer who are being shaped in dependence and with kingdom priorities and in compassion, people who are praying for opportunities and praying for words and praying for people, let us be shamelessly persistent. This is what Jesus tells us in Matthew 7. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask? Ask and keep on asking. Urgently make requests. Urgently cry out to God for others. Pour your heart out and do it again and do it again and do it again. God invites you to be shamelessly persistent. So why do we not ask? What keeps us from being shamelessly persistent? Like my guess is on the one hand, it has to do with pride. It has to do with indifference. It has to do with laziness. It has to do with the fact that we're, that the, the, the mission of God just doesn't really have our hearts the way it should. But I think there's probably something bigger going on. The bigger problem is this. We probably don't believe God is this good. We probably don't believe that God is this powerful to save. 
We don't ask because we really don't believe God is going to save. We don't pour our hearts out to God over and over and over because we don't believe that he's really that good. And so we're prayerless. Or we just pray once in a while. Small prayers, small expectations, small mission, small risk, small pouring out our lives. What would it mean if we really believe that God is good? Like, how good is he? Like, how good do you believe he is? How powerful do you believe he is? John Piper, in his book, Desiring God, speaks to the sad effect of not seeing God the Father and Jesus as good. And I've read this quote several times in sermons, but I think it's such a powerful quote to be reminded of of the effect of not seeing God as good. Jesus says to the woman at the well, if you just knew the gift of God and who I am, you would ask me. You would pray to me. There is a direct correlation between not knowing Jesus well and not asking much from him. A failure in our prayer life is generally a failure to know Jesus. If you knew who was talking to you, you would ask me. A prayerless Christian is like a bus driver trying alone to push his bus out of a rut because he doesn't know Clark Kent is on board. If you knew, you would ask. A prayerless Christian is like having your room wallpapered with Saks Fifth Avenue gift certificates, but always shopping at Goodwill because you can't read. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that speaks to you, you would ask. You would ask. Like through Jesus, God challenges us here. Do you know how good I am? Do you really know how good I am? Do you know how powerful I am? Do you know how willing I am to save? If you knew, you would ask. Church, our God is good. Our God is gracious. Our God is merciful. Our God spared no expense to save us. And he is powerful to save. He has promised to save. He is willing and he desires to save. He is that good. And so let's be people who ask. Let us be people who are shamelessly persistent. Let us be people who give our lives to be on mission in this city, to make disciples and to see gospel renewal transform our neighborhoods and our city and our region. But let all of that activity be driven by the belief that our God is good and he is powerful. And so we are committed to prayer and make prayer a priority. Amen.